From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. Officials in Arizona are now stepping up security after describing instances in which vigilantes, their word, were seen loitering around ballot boxes. A voter reported the people took pictures of them and their license plate. New threats of political violence and voter intimidation in this year's midterms. As we head into the midterms, we are witnessing efforts around the country at voter intimidation and suppression. Anti-democratic candidates are already saying they will not concede if they don't win. And Christian nationalists are poised to impose their theocratic vision upon the majority of Americans. Fortunately, Americans from a constellation of faith traditions and no faith traditions, as well as different political backgrounds, are pushing back and defending our democracy. We will be speaking to one of the brightest lights among this group, Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner, who has long provided inspiring leadership in congregations across the country, as well as in the halls of Congress. She is the CEO of the Skinner Leadership Institute, and she will be with us to discuss the work she is doing to help save our democracy. We are in a spiritual battle, and they're using these weaponized terms now, just like they use the term conspiracy theory and all these other terms, you know, this new one, Christian nationalist. Faith-associated groups are engaged in the upcoming elections on all sides, and as deeply as in any time in recent memory. We have Christian nationalists with a van touring around baptizing people, while they are being followed by an interfaith group saying, no thank you. Religion News Service national reporter Jack Jenkins is an astute observer of this kind of activism, and he'll be back with us to share some of what he's been reporting on in this midterm election. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on iTunes and all the other podcast platforms. Each week, I'm in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the country. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join me in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner is president of the Skinner Leadership Institute, a past executive director of the Black Congressional Caucus. She founded the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation Prayer Breakfast with her late husband, Tom Skinner. Dr. Williams Skinner is co-convener of the National African American Clergy Network and, in the 2022 election cycle, is coordinating the Faiths United to Save Democracy Voter Justice Campaign. Dr. William Skinner, thank you so much for being with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I want to start uh, at whatever beginning you want to start with, but I'm very interested in when you became aware of the intersection between your work on social justice and religion. Like, how did that come together for you? When was the first time you were aware of how those things intersected in a way that resonated with you? Well, it's just a weird connection in every way. I I grew up with a praying mother, but I was an agnostic uh, all through college and uh, into my early adulthood, even to the time of working on Capitol Hill. So social justice was in my DNA. And I'd go with my mother to to pass out, you know, literature to people to help serve in the soup kitchen, even though we were very poor and whatever. But so I always had a sense that uh, that the best way to be fully human is to help others who are in need. Okay, so that was never an issue. But the intersection uh, probably came uh, when I met Tom Skinner and heard for the first time in 1979 when he spoke in Washington, D.C., about Jesus. I never heard about a personal relationship with Jesus because I left church when I was 11 and a half, just, you know, on a resignation from my church from my mother in a letter written to her at 11 and a half. So I never came back until I met Tom and, and sat in the back just in case something stupid was said. I could just slip right out. 
weeks. I promised to be there, not to stay. <laughs> so, but I never heard someone so powerfully connect Jesus to the those who are left on the side of the road, those who have no voice, those who have little hope, those who are trounced. I never heard that. I know I'd work with the Black Power Movement. I know I'd work with people, you know, serving the poor. I know I'd protested against all kinds of, of injustices. It never occurred to me that I had ever heard that connection. I thought of church as a place for the the, the safe to be safer. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that is, but, that but, is but powerful. It never, it never. But once I did, I became so uh, excited and enthralled with not only the concept of being forgiven for every sin, but that you could walk day to day empowered by the same one who, who forgave us every single wow. day to do exactly what we're called to do. So I've never had a fear of going to be with the most powerful people and say what thus said the Lord, go to the White House, go to Congress, go to Democrats, go to Republicans, go to Black people, white people, Latinos, anybody, and say, this is what justice looks like. And what you're calling Christianity is culture. Woo. Okay, so can, can we just back up one, because we talked about Tom Skinner. Can you just say a, a word about him and, and, and who he was in your life and who he was in the nation's life? Yeah, Tom Skinner was a uh, what probably one of the most profound messengers of the gospel in the 20th century. Um, he uh, was a gang leader from Harlem turned uh, messenger of Jesus. And uh, he became uh, the one voice among evangelicals that they heard about this gospel of Jesus caring for the poor. He was actually, he probably raised up a lot of white evangelicals' children, even though they rejected him. He was, there are schools now, the evangelical schools that if I named the name, you would know all of them, where he spoke only once because they said, why don't you just speak the gospel? And he said, well, that is the gospel to talk about right. loving right. your neighbor as yourself, yeah. whatever my neighbor looks like, or, you know, caring for the least of these. Uh, so he got actually disinvited from a lot of places. That's the man I met and married. Mm. Talk a little bit about the work that you both did in Congress. Well, I was working for the Congressional Black Caucus in the days of Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan, who were my my sheroes, my bosses, my mentors. Tom was then chaplain for the Washington Redskins. That was the name then when they knew how to win. He was chaplain for them, the New York Yankees, the Jets, the Mets. <laughs> that was and, that um, was shade on so many levels, but good for you. <laughs> it was true shade, okay, because we went to the Super Bowl twice, and I think they don't even know what the Super Bowl is. But the issue is that uh, Tom and I decided to put to join our shared fields and spaces together and began to go to meet with members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, and just share the gospel, pray with and for them, which I continue to do today, mm. uh, because we believe that's what God had called us to do. We started the Congressional Black Caucus Prayer Breakfast when it was like a legislative policy and party weekend with uh, 50 people, uh, and it it ended up being more like 3,000. So we always felt that you should take the gospel to the streets. And because I was unchurched, basically, growing up, it never occurred to me that I need to be shut in four walls <laughs> to share mm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Tom, of course, was out there uh, all of the time. So it was a it was a great marriage. It's, it's an extraordinary story. Um, talk to me a little bit about where you are now with... Um, the work you're doing, I can imagine someone who's been in politics for as long as you have and, and in, in justice movements, not politics. I don't want to relegate you to one area, but you must be perplexed is the nicest word I can think of uh, with what we're facing right now in this country. Can you talk a little bit about where do you where do you see us? Like what's happening is I think what a lot of us are asking. What is happening right now? And then I want to talk about some of the ways you've been responding to that. Yeah. 
we are a nation that hasn't changed a lot from our beginning. Um, there have been phases and seasons. You know, remember the nation was founded on nearly annihilating Native Americans, enslaving Blacks, and being really uh, unjust to people of color in general. And we found it, a, you know, as I would say, as an American, a great nation. But it did not include non-whites, all right, in that founding principle. I don't think that's changed. I think the fact that we're having a problem with people voting who don't look like us is not inconsistent. The fact that white Christian nationalism is the most dangerous factor in America now You know, the Justice Department is looking at white Christian nationalism the way we used to look at bin Laden and and, and people who were attacking us from abroad, but we're being attacked from within. Add to that the pandemic that we've been through, where people have been shut apart from one another. So you've had the right, you didn't have a change from um, the KKK. You just had new messengers, new evangelists for white Christian nationalism and white supremacy. Trump is not new. He is another effective voice for hate. Okay. All right. So nothing has changed, Paul. What has happened is that we see for the first time on the ballot democracy. See, but democracy Mm. was a given growing up. We always thought, you know, maybe Russia would expire. Maybe Great Britain would not be great. You know, another country would, would, would pass away the way Rome did, but not America. And its core, it's, it's, uh, the spirit of law and order, the sense of that they're a nation of laws, right? That's on the ballot. What's on the ballot yeah. is is what post-democracy might look like when you have state legislatures that can overturn the elected will of the people. When yeah. you have uh, white Americans now 52% of the population when they were 85% in, in 1960 saying, oh, we're losing our nation and now we have to do underhand illegal, mischievous, deceptive things to maintain white minority rulership. That's the weakening of American democracy. And that's the danger of our nation. Nothing has changed. The main thing is that we've gone through several pandemics. And I'm going to add the pandemic of democracy, a, 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 a health, an economic, a racial pandemic. And now the fourth pandemic, the pandemic of a democracy on the ropes. I think you're you're hitting it completely. Um, and I think it it needs to be said because this is not business as usual. I, I, I think for the first time in my life, and then I have a 94-year-old father who's who just I was like, have you ever seen have you ever seen anything like this he was like never it never felt like this it never felt like democracy was truly imperiled in the same way so i want to get to some of what you have been doing because you are uh, i think as we've already surmised uh, listeners who maybe didn't know you before they know now uh that you are not someone to sit idly by and so one of the things that you have started which is you know speaks directly into that is a group called Faiths United to Save Democracy. Um, and you've had some great partners in that. But I yeah. I just have spent some time on that website. I urge listeners to go to that website and really spend some time because it is incredible in its rich resources, but also stating plain what we're facing. But talk to me a little bit about, like, how did that get started? How did you say, okay, this is what we need to do right now. This is a 2022 yes. urgent alarm. Yes. Well, in prior elections, we worked primarily, that is Skinner Leadership Institute, the organization I had, and the National African American Clergy Network of denomination leaders representing some 15 to 20 million members, right? We've worked on Black voter protection, outreach, mobilization, and the like, but we discovered 
that 34 million uh, disabled Americans, when you take away the drop boxes, are disenfranchised. When you have no wheelchairs in poor white neighborhoods and they're elderly people, they are disenfranchised. When you have synagogues and mosques being burned down, and I'm a Christian, that's a problem for those who follow Jesus and his mandate to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we said that we needed to have a much bigger tent. And so Faith United to Save Democracy is nonpartisan, multi-faith, race, and generation, and is focused on simply protecting the right to save what John Lewis called a precious, almost sacred right to vote. That's what it is. And we're in 10 states. If people will go to turnoutsunday, that's one word, dot com, turnoutsunday.com, you'll see the states. Um, we have almost 700 poll chaplains that we have uh, organized today. Could you say a little bit what a poll chaplain is? A poll chaplain is a faith leader standing in the spirit of God for the vulnerable to say this person has a right to vote in Alabama, in Arizona, uh, in Texas, in North Carolina, in Ohio. And not only am I going to stand there in my sacred attire and say, you know, in the name of the God I serve, this person has a right, and I'm going to stand here and be protective of them, but I'm also going to be connected to a hotline of lawyers. So if they have legitimate practical question, I'm also going to help them. So we've done all the month of October of trainings. We had one last night of 200, probably more whites than blacks, uh, middle-class uh, white people who are saying, yes, I want to be in a country that's inclusive. I want to be in a country that protects all rights. And so I'm the yeah. most hopeful person today. Uh, other people might be depressed. I think you get depressed when you're not doing anything. I think oh, when you quote, when you quote, watch preach, the news, preach. Yes. Watch yes. the news. Watch the news. And you sitting in there saying, yeah, our country's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. People are looking for a way to be together. They're looking for the alternative. They know we are uh, we're slowly becoming, not by anybody's machination, <laughs> a multiracial society. That's not against anybody. No. That is the nation, a richer nation that we are, we are becoming. So Faith United to Save Democracy, we've done voter education. We've been at this for since last June. And we have just helped people to see, look, this is your right. You need to protect it. It's not yeah. a given. It's not, right. It doesn't have to be here forever if you don't protect it. And so I'm thrilled with the young people, older people, people of all backgrounds who are learning to talk to one another. Amazingly, last night we had Christian Jews and Quakers as well as imams on the, and, and, and Muslims on the line. We haven't quite learned how to say uh, interfaith. We are not learned how to say there's the space for all of us. So there are more Christians in our coalition. They, they think everybody's Christian. I'm reminding them we can't make this without, make it without, and I know your, your background is partly Jewish. We can't make it without all of our brothers and sisters. I'm not applauding myself because we are barely at the iceberg of getting people to realize I need to understand my Asian brothers and sisters. They're not my mm. enemy. The mm. white whites are not my enemy. The, the enemy is the is hate. Mm. The enemy is injustice. The enemy is a society where everyone does not matter. Where where we're not all made in the image of God. That's the enemy that we should all be fighting. Yeah. I, I appreciate that so much. And I, I, I really want to underscore what you said, which is like, we can scroll Twitter, we can, we can just, you know, be be angry and angry. The when you get out there and you meet other people and you, you collaborate on doing something positive, it, it is really it is like coming, you know, sunshine after weeks of rain. You know, I mean, really, it is so yeah, good. very encouraging and right now to see that in, in, in Arizona, for example, it would be heartbreaking if I could say this story without poll chaplain. But because we have poll chaplain, we're not afraid when we see people brandishing guns in Phoenix and other places that is happening today as you and I are speaking right now. But our poll chaplain had de-escalation training for an hour last night. They understand how to deal with conflict nonviolently. And so they're going in that spirit of peacekeeping, right? 
And so I believe that our nation is going to be better when people make a decision between you want to be in a nation where only a few people have all citizenship rights and where the the rest of people are are stomped on? Or do you want to be in a nation where everybody's valued? Everybody mm. counts. Everybody matters. Everybody has a voice. And I believe we have that option before us in the name of our God. Well, and you know, the amazing thing is, is that that is so important that this is, there's a vision that we're offering, which is incredibly powerful and hopeful and inclusive. It welcomes people of faith and people who have no faith, people, no who, faith want to be, who, people who want to be together. And, yes. and I was talking, we have affiliates of Interfaith Alliance across the country. And I was saying, like, we have a great story, which is we want to welcome everyone. We want to create a world where everyone, no one gets left behind. And this is just so, so what, hearing what you're saying, first of all, the midterms will pass. We'll see what happens with that, you know, is uh, Faith United to Save Democracy going to continue, or of is this course. a one-off? Absolutely. Okay, it has because to continue. I w- it has to continue. It has to continue. Uh, yes. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I want to encourage people who are listening. Please go to turnoutsunday.com. Yes, dot com. Dot com. Turnoutsunday.com. Sign up. Tell me about like what it takes to be a poll chaplain. I know there's lots okay, of ways to so get involved. So people do but... not have to be ordained. Um, no, they can be at any you know any faith tradition. Um, they don't have to be the pastor. They can be a Sunday school teacher. We don't care. They're people who just care about uh, protecting the vulnerable, right? Yeah. Um, we we ask that they wear a sacred attire. That could be a stall. It could be a stole. It could be a collar. It could be whatever, but it's not required. They will have ID. We have a, a makeup uh, poll chaplain training on this coming Tuesday, 6 to 7 on November 1st. We'll send out notices on that. It'll be posted on our website. All they have to do is sign up for the uh, if they want to go Alabama, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Wisconsin. That's a big part of the nation. That is right? a big part of the nation. So they and... have an opportunity to go to one of the cities in that state where the need is greatest. If you're middle class, do not sit in your middle class neighborhood because your vote is not obstructed, right? Middle class people like me, we have lawyers. We know how to protect ourselves. You don't want to go to a black middle class neighborhood. You want to, or a Hispanic middle. We have to go where people are, have the greatest need. It's usually poor and lower income. So mm. I'm asking people to get out of their comfort zone and go where they're assigned. It's only yeah. for three hours. It's not all day. Yeah. And we give them uh, a kit to take with them, a pole chaplain training kit. They take that. They have special numbers. We have a call number if they don't know their assignment. And we really have covered them. You're, you're well. together. Listen, and this is what I do want to say is that it may be that people are not didn't get a chance to to be with you this time. But there's a next time. And I oh, have a absolutely. feeling that there that, that um, you're in 10 states now. My guess is that there are many states who would love to have this because there's it's those are those are I, I can see why those states were chosen, but this is needed everywhere. And so I just want to applaud everything you're doing. And and I just wonder, like, if you can send us out with like some good you, you've already given us hope and you've already given us something we can do. But let me let me ask you. You know, that 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 tricky question. But in 10 years, if you if you can imagine a future in 10 years, what would our democracy look like? What would America, the United States look like in 10 years if we can really all take this moment of crisis? Because I think it is a crisis and 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 go into it directly and do what needs to be done. What does America look like in 10 years? So the word crisis, we know, has the opposite side, which is opportunity. I think we have the opportunity to get out of our comfort zone wherever we live and begin to connect with people outside of our comfort zone. All of us, I don't care if you live in an all-white community, if you live in an all-black community, you have a way of connecting in a comfortable way, right, through relationships you have uh, in your own city to say, where are people meeting across these borders? Then I can go and learn 
and and they can learn from me, right? So I think people, I would see in America in 10 years where the intersection of race in politics means uh, that, and, and religion means that we are in each other's lives, that you will see whether we're on Zoom or whether we're face-to-face, there'll be more groups like Faiths United to Save Democracy, more interfaith, multiracial, and multi-generation organizations where we're literally learning from one another. We understand we don't know each other. We're learning each other. I tell people Faith United is not perfect. We're learning each other. We haven't been together since the civil rights movement as uh, a diverse coalition. So I, I sense that can happen. I think we're going to be providing more teaching tools to people about how to relate. How What do other cultures look and feel like? How, what are the opportunities we have to uh, be together during special events or holidays. What, you know, for example, I have to think about, I have a Super Bowl party every year, right? Um, I make sure that it doesn't look like me, all of it, right? So I have my white friends who like, I mean, I may not let certain t- people who support certain teams in my house, but uh, yeah. aside from that. <laughs> okay, okay, now it's coming out. <laughs> it's name coming out. Name names. We all have name names. We all have, we all have our, our name learning. Name. We, come love, on, which teams? Which teams? I, come on. I make sh- <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get you in trouble. <laughs> uh, no, you're getting me in trouble. But but I have to consciously, if I'm not, I want to be in America where people consciously decide to be connected to other people by recognizing we don't know how to do it. We're all learning it together. This is not about white guilt and, and black you know, anger. This is about us coming before God and saying, we all need to learn how to be better as being your children, your prized possession. And Lord, give us the space to do that. And it takes leadership for that. Okay, so I'm, I'm praying for leaders, those who are being in divisive now that they would learn that that will get them nowhere. I want more people sitting on the sidelines, off the sideline. It's only 20% on either extreme. We want those in the middle, right? We want that 60% to start learning how to be together. That's the America that I'm cheering for. That's the America mm. I want to see. Mm. Mm. And full participation and people people coming together, learning. I love that. I think that the idea of a learning country, wouldn't that be lovely if we all recognize that we are a learning country? I think, um, you know, one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite quotes and, and phrases is achieving our country from James Baldwin, which is like we have to work together to achieve our country, but it won't achieve itself. And so we have to do we have to do it together. Yeah, you can't uh, download a country. <laughs> you can't download a country and you can't swipe, you know, you can't swipe left or right. You, it, it's something we need to actually get into. So, uh, Dr. William Skinner, I want to thank you so much for being with me today on State of Belief Radio and sharing yeah. your wisdom, sharing your hope and sharing your way that everyone can get involved. Well, thank you so much. And your father uh, was a hero of my late husband's. And I learned a lot about your family from uh, Dr. Walter Rauschenbusch. Uh, thank you so much. That was my great grandfather. I your he, he was in the yeah he was in the beginning of the twentieth century. My father. Oh, okay. Walt, your, well, your great grandfather was an amazing person. He, he was an amazing person, and my father was named after him, Walter Rauschenbusch. He was a law professor, a great man on his own. But I, I'm not that old. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I'm just kidding. No, you you're, you're great. very, you look you're great. very, I'm sorry. you're very nice to to mention that. And you know, one of the great honors of my life was. Um, um, when Representative John Lewis said something similar to me, and I, I, I felt like that it was just such a, a humbling, amazing moment. And I know that there, there's would be no greater praise for Walter Rauschenbusch that that he would contribute to the work that you're doing today. I think that would be his highest honor. So thank you for all you're doing, and thank you for uh, being with us here today on State of Belief Radio, and appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. God bless you. Up next, Religion News Service National Reporter Jack Jenkins. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week 
extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. Jack Jenkins is an award-winning national reporter at Religion News Service. A keen observer of the interplay between American religion and American politics. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. You have been writing about something that many people are talking about right now, which is Christian nationalism. You are perhaps the first reporter that I really watched uh, take this up. And so kudos to you and 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 all the work you've done in it. I'm going to ask you the you. Um, million, billion, trillion dollar question. How do you define Christian nationalism? <laughs> so I, I actually use a fairly broad definition, um, and I'll explain that in a second. The, the, my working definition is the um, those who believe that America was founded as a Christian nation, and more importantly, that it either has deviated from that Christian founding and needs to return to it, or that it just needs to remain a Christian nation. And I think that second part is even more important than the historical one, because it's kind of the the um, call to action for Christian nationalists. Right. And the reason I use that broad definition is that there's a bunch of Christian nationalisms underneath that broad definition. Say a little bit more about that. How, can you delineate any of the nationalisms that you're observing right now? Sure. I mean, you know, there are certainly some hardline extremist um, uh, positions. I should note that in the aftermath of January 6th, we've seen a lot of right wing extremists actually kind of, you know, really take on Christian nationalism as a cause. Um, and they were actually some of the first to start using it as an, identi an identity for themselves, identifying as Christian nationalists. Uh, these are people like Nick Fuentes, a white nationalist head of the group in America First. Um, he has called for something that he describes, you know, Catholic Taliban rule. He actually has a a Catholic bent on his Christian nationalism. Andrew Torba, um, the head of the right wing social media website Gab, um, who's known for for you know sharing anti-Semitic messages and whatnot. You know, he's written a whole book on this topic, and you know, those kind of are more draconian. These different visions for Christian nationalism about you know the idea of really kind of pushing a specific kind of uh, rule on other people. Torba's is actually even Christian statism. He's actually willing to, um, he thinks it could work differently in different states, but it's still this idea that you would pass laws um, to champion a specific form of Christianity. Um, you also kind of have the iterations expressed by people like Doug Mastriano, the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania. You know, that was a form of Christian nationalism that got really popular in the aftermath of January 6th among those um, some on the right that kind of fused anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown, anti-mask sentiment with Christian nationalism. That's actually how Doug Mastriano kind of got a following in that state. He's who was really involved in that movement um, last year and the year before. And it was through those networks that he kind of, you know, you lifted up this this version of Christian nationalism that simultaneously harkens back to older versions like the, you know, the older religious right, their understanding of history from the 80s and 90s, and then adds to it this sort of um, kind of pushback against the government, kind of anti-government sentiment while simultaneously wanting to put themselves in government um, to pass a different kinds of laws. Uh, so let's think, stick yeah. there for a second, because I think that, um, you know, Mastriano is a really interesting, important example of uh, how it's on. Christian nationalism has arrived at the ballot box this year, and um, we were talking to uh, a rabbi uh, Chopper, who is part of the Interfaith Alliance in Pennsylvania, and he he's he has seen that um, Mastriano has biblical verses on uh, his campaign posters, and the way that makes him feel as a non-Christian and uh, and the way I'm sure many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, feel when um, the goal is to take power and impose a certain religious perspective on the rest of the population. And, you know, it's it's very interesting that they're kind of, you know, I, I mean, I, maybe I misunderstood you. Are they are they um, adopting the Taliban as a role model? Uh, is, is that – did you say that? That that is Nick Fuentes. To be fair, is his 
ideology can be difficult to parse in general, but the phrase he used was Catholic Taliban rule. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So that's, that's a little, um, creepy and scary. And, uh, so, so I wonder if, um, you know, if you can see other places where you see, um, Christian nationalism as a really important part of the midterm elections, where else can you see that showing up in your, uh, in your work and your reporting? Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting about Mastriano is that he kind of, you know, he 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 has rejected the term Christian nationalism, at least he did the last time he was speaking to some mainstream media a year or so ago. Um, but, you know, he's kind of espousing this sort of idea, like he challenges the idea of a separation of church and state. He refers to it as a myth. And in a different interview, went at length saying he doesn't think it exists. Um, you know, we see that in uh, at least alluded to in other places. But he kind of like goes deep on this Christian nationalism culture, as it were. More often, we see kind of allusions to it, kind of um, the way that Trump did, where, you know, they'll make references to it. They will cater to certain communities, but they're not necessarily owning it the same way Mastriano did. Right. So like Ron DeSantis, when he campaigns in you know Pennsylvania or I believe in Ohio in particular he talks about putting on the armor of God as an aspect of campaigning which is you know just not necessarily a term that would have been used by Ron DeSantis two or three four or five years ago but seems to be part of the rhetoric now um you have Carrie Lake in Arizona who you know she compared the um you know, allegation, uh, criticism of her and others to that, you know, the, the allegations lobbed against Jesus, right? Um, and in some of these more vague allusions to faith, you could even find, you know, uh, comparisons to past Republican candidates. But, but in this particular midterm election, you know, one, the fact that you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene identifying as a Christian nationalist, um, you know, beginning earlier this year, you know, that is now part of the political discourse. And two, I think equally as interesting is, you know, I wrote a story a couple months ago asking around 50 congressional Republicans what they thought and whether they had any response to March Taylor Greene's claim that the Republican Party should be the party of Christian nationalism and wanted to see if they have any response, if they wanted to condemn that or reject that or embrace that. And only two responded. And neither of them refer to Christian nationalism by name. Both of those Republicans um, uh, actually just you know, said that they affirmed their belief in the separation of church and state, pushing back more on remarks from Representative Lauren Boebert, who had rejected the separation of church and state in the last few months as well. But all of that's now part of the conversation. Um, so you see inflections of it in all these different races across the country. Um, and, you know, Mastriano is the one that we point to uh often because he wears it on his sleeve. But if you listen to the rhetoric in a lot of states, it's it's coming up repeatedly. Yeah, that is, you know, it's nowhere do we see this in a kind of um, fabulous uh, or not fabulous in the good way, but fabulous, fabulousity or I don't know what, just like a, uh, a roadshow. Let me put it that way. Uh, in the Reawaken American Roadshow. Um, and, oh, yeah. And, you know, this is like high production value, including baptism, but it's really a political movement on wheels. And you've done a little bit of looking at that, I think. Um, what are some impressions? How does that re relate to the, you know, the, the candidates across the country using this rhetoric? And how, how do you see how do you see it playing in? Well, I think, you know, if if you're a Republican or conservative strategist, do you see things like the Reawaken America tour as elements of your base? Right. These, this is an aspect of you could see it as kind of this lineage you know, of Trumpism developing um, over the course of Trump's tenure in office. And also it, it took on its interesting iterations after he left office. Right. And so the um, the Reawaken America tour really kind of seems to be an outgrowth of what was the Stop the Steal movement that then became January 6th, that then became, you know, anti-vaccine sentiment. And, you know, led by, mm. um, you know, Mike Flynn in particular, they refer to him as America's general, who, you know, the AP has done a lot of reporting about how, you know, he's kind of pushing at a local level, these ideas of Christian nationalism, both as part of the Reawaken, tour, um, Reawaken America tour and other um, you know, kind of advocacy that he has done. You see that as just a part of the Republican base, right? And I think one thing that gets left out here is that um, 
you know, those kinds of people who are showing up to events. There was a Pew survey a few months back that sliced America into around 10 different political groups. And the farthest right was a group that they referred to as faith and flag conservatives, which Pew researchers told reporters was their attempt to kind of assess this kind of hardline version of Christian nationalism. And while they only make up around 10 percent, um, nine to 10 percent of the U.S. population, which is you know roughly the same chunks as these other um, parts of the U.S. population, they make up around a quarter of the Republican Party. And compared to all other political groups, they have the highest level of political activism, you know, second only and then only sometimes to progressives on the far left. And so you put all that together and you see that this group of voters, this group of activated people, the kinds of people that are showing up the Reawaken America tour are likely to make up a disproportionate um, uh, element of the Republican primary voters, or at least a group that punches above its weight. So it leads to people like Mastriano and others being the Republican candidate for these different races, because these are the folks who are showing up in a really big way. Yeah, I I, I just... (laughs) Just a comment on the America's general and the uh, you know and America's mayor for what whatever is the reason, but these people who claim America to be America's whatever tend to not be America's whatever at all, uh, but are you know taking a a mantle that uh, they neither deserve nor um, anybody should really hold. Um, what's been the response among um, that you've seen among other religious leaders? Both among conservative evangelicals who reject this, but also but also more progressive religious leaders from all different backgrounds as well as secular backgrounds, not as animated, but certainly somewhat organized, I would say. Oh, yeah. I mean, push back to Christian nationalism, this kind of modern era of Christian nationalism that kind of um, sprung up around Trump kind of goes back really to his 2016 campaign. I mean, you know, within a couple of years there, by 2018, there was already a Christians Against Christian Nationalism organization and sign-on letter. You know, when I was doing coverage of this starting in 2017 and going into 2018, there was no shortage of faith leaders who were rebuking the kind of Christian nationalism they were seeing in the group of evangelical faith leaders that Trump surrounded himself with. Um, the Poor People's Campaign, you know, led by Reverend William Barber, who in addition to be one of the being one of the most prominent um, progressive faith activists is just one of the most prominent progressive activists in general in the country. You know, the Poor People's Campaign has had as a pillar of their belief system that they put on their website opposition to religious and now Christian nationalism for years now, right? So there has been this systemic pushback um, along and along before, you know, January 6th, before the Stop the Steal movement. Since these things have occurred, um, and since, particularly since Christian nationalism became, you know, something that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene would identify themselves with, we've seen this surge of discourse around this topic. And, you know, throughout that time period, um, we've seen a lot of progressive faith leaders and liberal faith leaders push back on it. I will note, by the way, on January 6th, you know, I was in D.C. I wasn't at the Capitol. I was down the street because one of the only in-person um, protests, counter-protests that day against what was, you know, um, the the rally that was going to happen that then led to the insurrection was actually a group of clergy um, that were gathered around a Black Lives Matter sign that had been destroyed by um, members of the group Proud Boys just a few weeks earlier. And uh, that the fact that they were there, the fact that they were part of that demonstration, you know, it speaks to the fact that these fake leaders have been pushing back on you know what they were calling by name at the time as Christian nationalism for a long time. The other part of your question I think is really important though, which is that once Marjorie Taylor Greene started talking about Christian nationalism, there has now been this discourse even among conservatives about what that means. And you've seen a lot of pushback even from you know um, what at this point in American history might be described as moderate evangelicals who've been kind of rejecting it. Russell Moore, who you know was also very critical of Donald Trump. This is Russell Moore, the former head of the Southern Baptist Convention's political arm, has now written many pieces criticizing Christian nationalism. And one other piece here that I will close on is that in this interim, a lot of these folks have now started articulating specific visions for what they think Christian nationalism should be, and they don't agree with each other, right? For, you know, we, like I said earlier, you have Nick Fuentes talking about Catholic Taliban rule, but Greg Locke, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania uh, the ten- Tennessee pastor, 
um, who has gotten a lot of attention for you know his bombastic and inflammatory rhetoric, just um, a week or so ago, sort of posting on Facebook, advocating for burning rosaries and for burning what he called Catholic statues. And a few days later, he was on stage at the Reawaken America tour. And a few minutes later, uh, Michael Flynn was on stage and Michael Flynn is Catholic. So there may be some tensions even among Christian nationalists moving forward um, once they start talking about what they really want in these different versions of the Christian nation. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, it, that it is, um, it, you know, if we go back to the KKK or even further back, uh, the the rally of um, what w- would have been kind of, if not direct lineage, but, but certainly um, earlier iterations of this were as vehemently anti-Catholic as anything, in fact, uh, and, uh, you know, not wanting any more Catholics to come into this country and this country is not made for Catholics. And so it's very, um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not sure that they're willing to see the irony that they are now saying that this is meant to be a Catholic country, uh, in, given the, the resistance to that. I, I want to address something that I, I think you've, you've hinted at, but um, it, is there any frustration for you at the, with the January 6th uh, commission that there's been no mention of Christian nationalism? Um, you know, when you were so adept at um, identifying it and showing the symbols and showing how it was an impulse, it seems like they probably are nervous about it. I, I don't know. What is your assessment of why that has not been more of a conversation topic? So I think this is a fascinating question. And I should note up front that uh, at least two members of the January 6th committee, um, you know, Jamie Raskin um, and Adam Kinzinger, have both separately, when they are not on that stage um, at the committee hearings, talked about the role that Christian nationalism played in January 6th. Adam Kinzinger in particular has both condemned Christian nationalism by name and said and told Russell Moore, actually, that he didn't think January 6th would have happened the same way without the influence of Christian nationalism. But when they're up on that stage, there has been very little discussion of this. And so I can only speculate, and I know other people have speculated, but I will point out that one of the interesting elements of the, the, that those committee hearings is how it is very clear to a lot of different analysts they are trying to appeal not just to liberals or progressives, sure. but to a bigger swath of the American public. And you know, lawmakers are often concerned about you know looking like they're singling out one faith group or one community. Um, and so my you know I think some of the the, the theories I've heard posited um, here in Washington is that. You know, why would you spend your time discussing Christian nationalism um, as a motivator for why people did all these crimes when you can spend your time you know, saying, hey, look, here are the crimes that were done. Uh-huh. And, you know, we need to just you know, stick to the, the script of what, you know, convincing the American public that um, this happened. And, you know, the, the committee has, a, you know, arguing who is responsible for it. So that's that's my assessment of that um, as to why that is the case. But again, you know, many people, at least two people on that committee have have been open about the fact that they think Christian nationalism played a significant role. I should mention that uh, Representative Raskin also hosted us on the Hill when we did our briefing. So he's clearly it's on on his his radar for sure. And I think you're I think it's a political I think they've been very um, calculating in what they what effect they wanted to have. And and I think you're you're probably absolutely right. Something that is just really hard to get our minds around, but what role is QAnon playing in the Christian nationalist conversation, but also in just kind of motivating what I would just consider, just name craziness, um, like absolute craziness of, um, you know, ridiculous ideas like that have no basis that, you know, you know, we, we, I thought after Pizzagate, where someone was convinced that Hillary Clinton was in the basement of a pizza parlor with, you know, with a pedophilia ring and then there's no basement and they show up with a gun. Like it's, it's so absurd, but then there it is. And I'm just wondering like, but this is, you know, a belief. I mean, it's a belief system. I don't know. Break it down for me because I I have a really hard – I get a little apoplectic talking about it, but I think it has an outsized influence on the way we're we're addressing lots of issues right now. For sure. I I think – 
you know, the, the QAnon movement, I think there was a time period when people were differentiating it from other elements of what is often described as Trumpism. Um, now, you know, a lot of people, experts I speak with, you know, it's impossible to disentangle it, right? And that includes Christian nationalism. If QAnon and Christian nationalism were ever separate things, they're not now. You know, they quite frequently overlap. You know, when I was referring to that period in 2021 in particular, where there was that kind of spike in anti-COVID um, uh, measures and um, anti-vaccine sentiment, those sorts of things. You know, one of the the events that I covered at that time was a thing called Bards Fest um, out in Missouri. And the speakers there just did not distinguish between conspiracy theories and their um, um, Christian nationalism. They, they often intermingled them. And to the point where it became difficult to discern where one started and the other began. And, you know, there's, I've, I've heard other researchers kind of refer to elements of this as what's called conspirituality, right? This Oh my of, God, that word. <laughs> Stop. That's amazing. Okay. That's um, like, now I'm depressed. Yeah. Um, and I, mean, I think for me, there was this, there was this symbolic moment on January 6th where you had Jacob Chansley, the self-appointed QAnon shaman, shaman yeah. or Q shaman, whose own religious beliefs are actually very complex. You know, he had Norse symbols tattooed on his body. He often appeals to multiple different faith leaders at once. But when, you know, insurrectionists stormed into the Senate that day, there's footage of the fact that Jacob Chansley then led them in a prayer. And, you know, multiple people, and he was, when Jacob was leading that prayer, he was appealing specifically to Jesus Christ. And it had, you know, many overtones of Christian nationalism. And you had people in that room who were raising their hands in prayer. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece, you know, a few months after January 6th, looking at some of the people who were in that room, one of two of whom are just more rank and file evangelicals who kind of spoke about how that prayer was important to them later and how they, one of them said that that was like the, uh, something akin to uh, that that was a seminal um, uh, image of the movement for him. And so the fact that the Q shaman was leading these, you know, more rank and file evangelicals in this prayer that kind of alluded to Christian nationalism. And I think that says a lot about how these things have kind of come together and, and things like the reawaken America tour kind of a Testament to that to yeah. how like, you know, all the conspiracy theories and, um, you know, pushback against, you know, all these, these, these erroneous claims about the 2020 election and appealing to the Christian, this idea of a Christian nation will all happen in the same sentences. Sometimes. Yeah. Nothing like a shaman leading evangelicals in prayer to make your mind spin a little bit. Um, I want to talk about the disturbing anti-Semitism um, that we are seeing, you know, high-profile people like um, Kanye West and 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 Donald Trump, but but also I do feel like there is like inherent, frankly, inherent in Christian nationalism is a um, is a belief that uh, people of other faith traditions are second. Are, have a secondary status in the country. They can be tolerated, but they have a secondary status. And I just feel, I feel for um, my Jewish uh, family members, friends, I just feel like this feels like a, an intimidating time because of the rhetoric that has become, that is given permit to people, um, permission to be terrible. And uh, and I I don't know I I'm wondering if if that's something I know that uh, religion news service is covering it but I'm just wondering how you're reacting to what you're seeing. Yeah, you know I think one of the, I wrote this story last year about um, how you know in the aftermath of January 6th and the lead up to it Christian nationalism particularly became this um, clarion call for you know kind of extremist groups and I kind of talked to extremist experts who are kind of just, you know, we're, we're watching a lot of these online forums and a lot of these fo prominent voices and these right-wing extremist spaces. And they were really unsettled because not only were they seeing kind of like this spike in Christian nationalism in, in these extremist spaces where they would take that in a lot of different directions, right? You know, hardcore versions of patriarchy, um, obviously lots of forms of racism. And as you mentioned, the KKK is a classic example of Christian nationalism in an extremist um, form that also was virulently anti-Semitic, right? Um, but at the same time, we saw people like I mentioned Andrew Torba at Gab, you know, he has, you know, shared repeatedly anti-Semitic messages and some of these extremism experts i spoke with 
pointed out that in some of these forums, they started seeing, um, you know, kind of older versions of, uh, of, of kind of, for lack of a better term, you know, hardcore right wing uh, neo-Nazi theology that started reemerging that was being shared, what's called Christian identity with, you know, capital C, capital I that sort of theology started getting popular in some of these forums and um and 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 those those voices were growing louder i think it's important to note that extremists started identifying as christian nationalist um and then it was like a, a year to a few months later that people like marjorie taylor green started identifying as christian nationalist so they're clearly you know making this their influence heard across these chasms at some point and so very early on folks were expressing a deep concern for um, not just, you know, um, references to anti-Semitic, uh, you know, arguments and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, which are kind of embedded in a lot of QAnon rhetoric, but really virulently old school, hateful um, versions of anti-Semitism re-emerging in some of these circles that, you know, potentially as you widen the net of people who might find this permissible, start being picked up in more mainstream political spaces. So that was the concern that extremism experts were telling me over a year ago. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's not lost on you or me or most people that we just are coming up there. We just passed the four-year anniversary of um, the tragedy at uh, Tree of Life in Pittsburgh. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's just uh, – I, I, I – okay. I want you to give me a little hope here. You know, I'm a pastor and I should probably be trying to preach some hope. But what what's, what stories are you seeing that you're like, oh, okay. You know what? I, I'm going I'm, – I can't wait to interview them to – you know, I mean, you know, I, I, what can you give us that, that is out there in the religious um, reporting world that you live in that makes you say, okay, we're going to be all right? <laughs> I mean, I think – this election season is going to be interesting, right? Because um, I don't know if this is a perfect answer to your question, but for instance, one of the questions I have is you know, the latest polls on Mastriano don't have him doing particularly well in Pennsylvania, right? And some of these other candidates who were, who were really intensely Christian nationalists actually lost in the primaries. Um, and so there's a question as to whether or not you know, this election could go one direction where a lot of these Christian nationalists lose and the hardliners aren't going to abandon Christian nationalism, but maybe that would cut its influence in broader political circles where they're like, well, this isn't this doesn't help us win. So why would we double down on this? You know, members of the Republican Party in particular, um, you know, you also there's a dynamic where we we don't really know what happens when they lose. Right. Like Doug Mastriano was at the Capitol on January 6th. He says he left when it got violent. Um, but, you know, he was somebody who was forwarding these conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. So if he loses, there's questions about what that will mean um, uh, in Pennsylvania. But, you know, there is this interesting element of, of where there could be a scenario where a lot of the candidates who have, who have appealed to this, particularly ones who have kind of dug in on Christian nationalism, may, you know, have a bad night on election night. In addition to that, I mean, I do think it was true during a lot of elements of the Trump era. There is a big call and response um, among the American public on these sorts of questions, right, Um, of, of, of democracy in general and also Christian nationalism in particular. For instance, Pew just dropped a poll yesterday that the headline was that 45% of the country thinks that um, the United States should be a Christian nation. But when you dig into the data, the actual percentage of Americans who believe that you should um, have you know, more explicit laws that are, are explicitly Christian and impose those on others is actually a, a very small minority compared to that number. And so you know, when you actually look at the data here, the people who are really out front championing these kind of you know, hardline Christian national views do don't seem to represent a massive group of people. And so if um, there, there are Americans who are, who, who are disagreeing with Christian nationalism, you know, I think it is still very much the case that the majority on paper rejects these sentiments. Um, the question is how people will respond on election day and in a political activity in general moving forward if they see this as a concern, if they will take movements, if they'll be part of movements to reject it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'll note that, as, as, as you well know, there is no shortage of activists who have you know, been pushing people to recognize this as a concern, you know, 
Christian nationalism, like um, several other right wing elements, has it, it does seem to express some anti democratic sentiment. Um, and so, you know, raising the alarm about those sorts of concerns seems to have been a a, a recurring theme in a lot of circles yeah. over the last six months, in particular, and really the last few years. Yeah, well, that's certainly you know what, what what we're focusing on at Interfaith Alliance right now and uh and and feel very activated by it. Can you tell us like as we close out here one story of that you that just knocked your socks off recently about someone in the faith realm doing something that you just thought wow that is new. Like I haven't I haven't reported on that before. This person is breaking some interesting new ground on how religion works in society. Is there anybody that comes to mind or a group or just a cool story? I mean, we, I want to get a sneak tidbit of, of something that you might be uh, you're thinking about reporting on or someone you've, you came across in your work. Um, well, I, I, I'm loath to choose one. I will tell you, I, I do think it's interesting around election time, um, these stories of how how uh, there is no shortage of faith leaders and people of faith who are actively involved in the democratic process, not in a way that's trying to leverage their faith in other people, but just trying to like make sure that like the polling locations are safe, that people are able to get to the polls irrespective of who they vote for. Um, this is one of those things that a lot, you know, uh, for instance, you know, souls to the polls efforts that happen in a lot um, of black Protestant churches. You know, there there is no shortage of things like that across the country happening right now as all these different states allow for early vote. And um, it's an interesting thing to note, to recall every, you know, two to four years as a reporter, because you know these are how a lot of people get inspired to vote, how they feel safe to be able to vote, who drives um, elderly or um, folks who are disabled to polling locations, how people are cared for once they get there. Um, it, it's just a constant story about how democracy works, that, that different faith institutions and groups, again, not pushing their specific theology um, or even politics on people are trying to encourage people to participate in the process. And I'm, I'm just kind of always struck by um, that element. I will also say as something I have found particularly interesting um, and a very different topic, you know, the after the overturning of Roe v. Wade um, in um, earlier this summer, you know, the number of faith voices that have always been there and have been a part of the abortion rights conversation for, for decades, um, suddenly rising to prominence and claiming theologies that they have been saying more quietly for decades now. And, you know, even filing lawsuits in recent um, weeks and months to say, you know, actually, you know, uh, abortion restrictions and abortion bans infringe on my particularly um, particular faith um, perspective. And here's like, you know, centuries or millennia of theology to prove this is where I stand. You know, I, those stories are always really interesting to me and I think others in the public because they break our preconceived notions about what it means to be religious in America. And I think there's just stories like that throughout this year that have been really interesting to be reminded of. Yeah. Thank you so much for th those those uh, hopeful stories. The, uh, you're, you'll be delighted to know that the other person who's part of our uh, radio show this week is uh, Dr. Barbara Williams-Skinner, who's working oh, on yeah. Faith United for to save democracy. And she was talking about poll chaplains and, and really, you know, just pe getting people out there to help people feel safe. And so that's, you know, that that's part of this program. And, and I, I love that you mentioned that. It, it is really important that there is an, a role for religion to play in democracy, in fact, in promoting democracy, that I, I think um, – we we had uh, Fred Davy, uh, Reverend Fred Davy, come on uh, the other week. Who's he said like the the we are made in the image of divine. To be able to choose is actually a, a sacred act. To be able to make a choice uh, is a sacred act, and therefore the vote is sacred. Echoing some words of uh, of um, Representative John Lewis. So we we feel very fortunate. And I'll, I'll say also on the abortion, like you know, when I was growing up. 
my mother was the reason that we went to church. We went to a Presbyterian church in Madison, and my mother founded Planned Parenthood in Wisconsin, and she, hmm. and she came at it from a very strong religious point of view. She was, you know, I came from my father was named Walter Rauschenbusch, you know, so that you know, there's resonance there. But the right. reason we went to church was my mom, who was like, you know, oh, we're okay. gonna, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get some learning, and I just remember her like those things were joined for her. And so um, the idea that there's one way that religious people view abortion or same-sex marriage – in fact, the polling shows that the majority of religious people from the cross-religious traditions support the right for women to choose around their their reproductive health and – um, support same-sex marriage now. And yet we have right. – we continue to say, oh, well, the religious voice – you know, we don't want to squelch the religious voice. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, at Interfaith Alliance, we're saying, well, the religious voice – there's lots of religious voices here. So no right. one's one religious freedom should trump another religious freedom. And so how do we balance that? And so I just – first of all, I really appreciate you, your reporting. It's like it's it is a first stop for anyone interested in religion stories in America. It's really spectacular to, to talk to you all the time. Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, Jack Jenkins is an award-winning national reporter at Religion News Service and author of a compelling book titled "American Prophets: The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country." Jack, thank you for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We've covered a lot of ground, and it's challenging to talk about the threats to our democracy and religious freedom while keeping hope and resilience. Fortunately, I think we found just the right voices to help us do that in this critical moment. These are the stories we need to keep hearing, and that's a key reason why State of Belief is here. We've covered a lot of ground today, and it can be challenging to talk about the current threats to our democracy and religious freedom while maintaining hope and resilience. But talking to people like this, doing important work on the ground, really helps. And these are the stories we need to keep on hearing, and that's a key reason why State of Belief is on the air. I hope you'll consider helping us to amplify the voices doing this critical work by making a financial contribution to keep this program going strong. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. You can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief. That's at State of Belief. And share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.